Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Elixir Mix podcast. This week on our panel, we have Mark Erickson. Hey, friends. Josh Adams. Hello. Michael Reese. Hello, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we're talking to Jose Valim. Jose, you want to say hi? Hi, everybody. How's it going? This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So uh, if, if people don't know who you are, how do you usually introduce yourself? Oh, uh, <laughs> well, it, uh, that's, well, in this context, I would say, hi, I'm Jose Valin, creator of Elixir, but that's not how I introduce myself to random people in the elevator, right? <laughs> but yeah. Oh, I could totally see you at the grocery store. <laughs> hi, I'm Jose, I made Elixir. Yeah, and then I hand out stickers. Oh, man, I need to get stickers. Yeah, I'll, I'll just head out to, you're in Portugal, right? I'll just head out over there and, uh, yeah. Oh, no, you said you were in Poland right now. Poland, yeah, Krakow, Poland. Yeah, so uh, come find me in the grocery store, usually 8, 9 a.m., and then I'll have my stickers ready. All right. I'll, I'll come cyberstalk you, find out where you live. Um, now that that's gotten all creepy, you want to talk, talk to us about Elixir? I'm, I'm a little curious just to get started. I mean... Um, I know you from the Ruby community, uh, a lot of the things that you did there, uh, Platform Attack, Device, some of the things there. Um, so was Ruby just not good enough for you? I mean, why go build Elixir? All right. Uh, so so it actually, so as you said, I was, uh, I was uh, a member of the Rails team and I did a bunch of open source contributions through Platform Attack. Uh, which is still active in the Ruby community, but very active in the Elixir community as well. And at the time, and you probably heard this at the time, what was happening is that we started hearing about multi-core, right? So uh, as part of the the Rails team, for example, I would hear a lot from people, well, I want to deploy, I'm deploying like Rails on a machine with like four cores and uh, it's just using one core, it's not efficient, or it would start like multiple processes and then the memory's age would spike. So I started hearing I'm a lot about break that. In here. I still mostly do Ruby. And yeah, I've heard of multi-core. Right. So, yeah. So, but this is like, at the time, like 2008, 2009 was when kind of everything started. We had like a Google Storm of Code uh, for like making Rails uh, thread safe. And, but what it did at the time is that it added a lock around Rails which is like, sure, it doesn't guarantee that 
it guarantees that Rails is not going to blow up, but it's not going to give you any of the performance benefits that you expect from running uh, in a multi-core environment, right? So uh, it's kind of like the lowest possible guarantee. So uh, I was like a little bit curious. I wanted to know a little bit more about um, yeah, so so and so for example, this was back in 2008, 2009. So we had the Google Summer of Code, for example, that was about uh, improving Rails with multi-core. But what it did at the time was just to put a huge lock around Rails, which sure it makes it guarantees that Rails is not going to blow up, but uh, it doesn't. It's not going to give you the performance benefits that you would expect. So. So what I so at at the time I was seeing like more and more conversations happening here, and I was not really super familiar uh, what th that actually meant to be multi-core. So I do not come from I do not have like a a computer science background, right? So I was like, well, let me see, let me see uh, what this actually means, and I wanted Ruby to if this is the future. And back at the time, we were already hearing like this is going to be the future. There were important papers being published saying that the, the most famous one is the free lunch is over, right? That says that uh, programmers, they were very uh, lucky because for the last like three decades, uh, computers, they got magically faster, uh, twice faster every three years. And it is, is a very good position for an engineer to be, which because it meant that if it did no work at all, everything would get twice faster, right? Like imagine that, uh, but you know, this free lunch is over, so I was like, okay, I want to see which options and what ways we can actually do to solve this problem. So I started to study other technologies, other programming languages, and um, and it was like throughout this journey that I say like I've had some points of no return. So the first point of no return was uh, with functional programming, and there are a bunch of different ways you could describe functional programming, but uh, to me at the time, uh, what functional programming meant was to think about more of transformation of data than mutation of data, right? So for example, in Ruby, since we're using Ruby as a reference, uh, if you have an array and you delete an element of that array, you change that array in memory, right? Where in Elixir or uh, in functional languages in general, if you, you cannot like go and change the array in memory, Right, you can, you actually, when you delete an, an element of the array, you create a new array without that element. And that like removes a whole category of, uh, of issues that you can have with concurrency, right? Because a lot of the issues you have with concurrency, they are data races. They means like you have like two threads uh, trying to change the same place in memory. But if they're not changing the same place in memory because they're no longer like mutating our data structures, like those whole data races, they, they disappear, right? So this is something that uh, we, hear, we hear a lot sometimes from uh, communities say, well, but concurrency is hard. Like it's hard if I think about data races, but once you eliminate like data races, the, the issue, the, the things that you have to tackle when you think about concurrency, they are all what I say is like, common life, everyday life concurrency issues, right? So for example, you say, oh, what if I have like two things writing to the database at the same time? It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter like which language you're using. We have to think about that concurrency thing, right? Or you can have two uh, Ruby, separate Ruby processes, or you can have two separate threads, but those are everyday life concurrency issues that every developer at some point needs to familiarize themselves with. So yeah, so that was my first point of no return is like, 
figuring out that there is a way of writing software that eliminates data races and consequently eliminates a bunch of the issues uh, that I was uh, facing in, uh, in terms of concurrency. So I was like, okay, uh, this, this sounds like a great idea. So, and for that moment on, I knew like, you know, we have a bunch of functional programming languages, right? So I started to learn more about functional programming languages. And then, and then my second point of no return was exactly when I found Erlang and the Erlang virtual machine, because uh, while at the time, so again, like 2008, 2009, 2010, we were already hearing a lot of languages talking about concurrency and focusing about concurrency. Erlang is not about concurrency. Erlang is about distribution, right? So to me, while everyone was like, at the beginning of the race, Erlang was like, hey, I am here. I've crossed the line. Because if you imagine like you have a very powerful machine with 24 cores, right? And then you write your software that can run concurrently and use all the 20, 24 cores in that machine. And that machine is no longer enough. What is the next step? Right? You have to make it distributed. You have to put more machines into the problem, right? And we, as like back-end engineers, we are not we are not deploying things with only one machine, right? We're starting with more than one machine for fault tolerance, uh, resilience, robustness principles from the beginning. So I was like, well, well, everybody is thinking about concurrency. Erlang is really attacking distribution. And the nice thing is that the same abstraction that we use for concurrency is the same for distribution. Uh, I like to say that in Erlang, you can think that concurrency is a special case of distribution where it just happens that everything is running on the same machine. And that's a very uh, interesting way to think about the problem. And uh, I think it, it really shows how good the abstractions that Erlang have uh, are, how good those abstractions are in the foundation, because you have something that is very simple and encapsulates uh, the concurrency encapsulates distribution. It also encapsulates uh, fault tolerance. So uh, yeah, so that was kind of like why you know it's not about like uh, you said like is Ruby not good enough? Uh, to me, it's not. It's not that. It's just this journey that I have uh, been on. And uh, at some points, I was like, this is really what I want for myself. And I think. I'm going to be more productive. I'm going to be a better software developer uh, if I leverage those tools. Um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, you mentioned some of, the, some of the things that happened in the Rails team that kind of led you to some of those questions. Was there anything in your work uh, uh, as a consultant or products or maybe side projects you're working on that, that pushed you towards wanting, those, wanting to solve those problems? Um, that's a very good question, and it has been such a long time ago that uh, I, I cannot recall the details. I remember, for example, working with some clients that at the time was, so for example, one, if you want to leverage, I, I don't know how is the Ruby ecosystem today. I've been kind of uh, distance over uh, uh, the last years, but at the time, what would it be like, if we actually wanted to leverage our cores, you would have to run on JRuby. So we had some clients, for example, like experimenting with JRuby or running JRuby. And, and sometimes there would be like bugs that would only happen when they did a new deployment during uh, spike times, right? So, and then we would, and then would say like, they would come and say, hey, like there's those errors that are happening. And then 
since I am like I was already in the Rails core team, somebody would come to me like those errors are happening. What do we do about this? And it's an error I never saw in my entire life before because it's an error that's only going to happen like if you are running on multiple cores and have a spike, and then there's a higher chance you're going to tr to trigger some data race or some race condition. And so those things, it's like from the maintenance perspective of a project, like you don't want to be you, like you don't want to be racing those like finding those bugs forever like it's just like you know you would you would like to you want to be sure that you're going to solve that problem you're going to solve it well and it's guaranteed that they're not going to have bugs again and i'm speaking like generally right like just whatever software i write that's what i want right i want to make sure that the solution is proper so uh, the whole reasoning like how how is this bug happening and uh, how can we fix it and how can i guarantee that uh, this bug is not going to come back again. Uh, those were all things that made me push to, to find better tools and better abstractions to solve those problems. That, that's really interesting. And we, we've heard Matt's, uh, yeah, I'm pretty heavily involved in the Ruby community as well. Uh, you know, Matt's has been talking a lot about, you know, concurrency in Ruby 3 or Ruby 4. But uh, yeah, it seems like that whatever we're going to get they're they're still not quite sure what it looks like so guilds or isolates yeah so one one thing that i'm curious about then is as you made this journey and you realize okay you know i want this level of distribution or concurrency you know whatever you want to call it um do you start essentially then writing a better erlang or do you wind up writing a better ruby with functional stuff in it does that make sense? Uh, One of the ways I think I would ask the question is, so you found Erlang along in this journey. Why not just use Erlang? Like what made you yeah. think I want to do Yeah, that what he said. <laughs> yeah, so somebody, somebody had a very good image uh, from this. Uh, I laughed a lot. Uh, it was, there is some uh, cartoon thing where there is an elephant and a penguin and then there is a mixed a penguin and elephant and then somebody's like what what is this right and somebody did one where the elephant or the penguin was ruby the other one was erlang and the mixed one was elixir so i was like what is this um but yeah so um it's kind of like it's not it's it's not there was no particular goal of saying this is ruby in erlang or erlang in ruby so the way that happened was something like uh so first thing is that I did not start by wanting to create a programming language per se. I like to say like, I think like most people, like that's generally not a good idea. Like, hey, I have a problem. I know I'm going to solve it. I'm going to create a new programming language. Like, congratulations. You just gave yourself 10 years of work, right? And a bunch more problems. So yeah, that's shaving times, a whole herd of yaks. Yes, right. So uh, I started with a prototype and as I said, I did not have formal computer science background so i was like you know what i want to learn more about erlang but i also want to learn more about how programming languages work so i may as well and i was already using erlang at the time so i may as well like try to do the both things at the same time so i will start trying a, a programming language that runs on the erlang virtual machine and uh that's pretty much how i started and I started with a prototype that to me, it was a bad prototype in all kinds of ways. So for example, my first prototype of a programming language that runs on the virtual machine, it was a, actually, it was an object-oriented uh, programming language with uh, a prototype-based system like JavaScript. 
Um, right. So I did try a couple things and it, it, it failed in a bunch of different ways. So, and this lasted like three to four months, kind of like just playing, try to see what comes out of it. And then I was like, so that was like really closer. That was more like, I would say, trying to bring, uh, Ruby or something that is objective oriented because Ruby is not prototype based. Right. But it was more like, well, let me bring like, uh, Ruby or whatever, you know, baggage I'm carrying for myself to this ecosystem. And this prototype failed. One of the very important lessons was if I want to use Erling virtual machine because of its strengths, then I have to leverage its strengths, right? It doesn't make sense to try to like create a whole thing on top. So uh, there came one of the, of the goals, like I really want this language, like I really want whatever this is going to be to be compatible with the Erling virtual machine. And, but the other goals, they came from things like, so for example, uh, as, as Ruby developers, we're very familiar with metaprogramming, right? And uh, it's a feature that a lot of people in the Ruby community really appreciate, really enjoy. There are some that do not enjoy that much uh, or think that uh, a lot of people, they are uh, abusing it. But I knew I wanted metaprogramming, right? I wanted some sort of metaprogramming. And, um, and one of the things that, uh, and in my prototype, I had like metaprogramming exactly like Ruby, where I was used to do evaluation of strings a lot. So when the prototype failed, I was able to say, look, I want metaprogramming, but I don't know how I want it to work, right? Like maybe it's going to be like Ruby, but maybe it's going to be like something else. And I need to find out what is this something else. So I did some research and then eventually I ended up in something that is inspired by the way that Lisp macros work. So uh, I got the metaprogramming, but without having the Lisp syntax, I did some trade-offs there. The other thing that I wanted is... I wanted to have, uh, I wanted to have, today I know the, the proper term in computer science. And what I wanted to do is that I wanted to have a, a ad hoc polymorphism, which for Ruby developers, we call them paralysis duct typing. That's how we call it, right? Like you can pass, in Ruby, you can pass objects around and doesn't matter. Uh, and the longest it, it uh, responds to or implement certain messages, certain methods, that other object can work with it, right? That's the typing, that's ad hoc polymorphism. So like, I want that uh, in, in this programming language as well, because in my opinion, it's a very important tool for us to write software that uh, where, we, where we can work on contracts, right? Where we can say, hey, give me this. I don't matter what this thing, I don't care what this thing is, but as long as it obeys this contract, I want to have it. So it was like, okay, this is what I want. So. And then I went to figure out different solutions that would fit better. Then I was like, do we have this in our lane? Oh, no, we don't. So how can I implement this? Oh, maybe I can implement like in Ruby, but that means having an object system. So I don't want that. Maybe there's another programming language that solves it. And then uh, I got or I based my implementation on that other programming language. So it was kind of like, uh, in a way, it was like kind of trying to make things mesh, see where it fails, and then understanding the problem well enough where I can like, okay, now that the problem is well specified, I can look for solutions. So for example, we talked about metaprogramming and how it's inspired by Lisp macros. And one, one thing that I really like, for example, about metaprogramming Elixir is that it's compile time only. In Ruby, a lot of metaprogramming happens at runtime, which means our system is running. It's changed itself as it runs, but in Elixir it's compile time, right? And, and that's it. I say it's like, it's a same insanity 
right? Because you can do really crazy things, but it, it's limited. It's not after you compile the code, the code is not going to change on your feet. And then, uh, and then with, uh, with the typing ad hoc polymorphism, I got implementation that uh, was inspired a lot by the closure implementation. So there they call protocols, right? And, and it's different from Ruby because in Ruby, all the contracts, they are implicit. And in Elixir, you, all those contracts, they are going to be explicit and powered by protocols. So there are different choices. And uh, yeah, so that, that's kind of how the process goes. And I think, as I said, like trying to make things mesh and then see where, where that doesn't work and try to find the best way to solve that particular problem. Yeah, I can, I can say that metaprogramming itself is like the big, was, was the big draw. Uh, for me, because in Erlang, um, parse transforms are not remotely as pleasant as uh, metaprogramming in Elixir. And also the ad hoc polymorphism is obviously valuable because like Elm, which is the other community I, I love a lot, uh, they, their big like argument for, I don't know, four years has been around type classes, which sort of exists to solve the same problem, but uh, more complicated. So yeah, th thank you for that. Yeah, actually, I would like to throw a thank you in specifically around um, metaprogramming as well. You mentioned, Jose, some of the things around runtime, uh, runtime things that can happen. And you can do, I'm aware of lots of languages that do really amazing things with runtime metaprogramming, but it can, it can be really hard to reason about a system. And I worked at a company where we used JRuby, um, and it was really interesting how many metaprogramming bugs came up because when you have multiple cores um, in, in some libraries that uh, where the authors weren't really thinking very much about JRuby when they wrote them, and then you add metaprogramming on top of all that, it, you, there was very interesting things that happened during the startup of an application. And, uh, and we learned about all sorts of interesting things there. So it's been um, really amazing to see the power of uh, metaprogramming still at my fingertips and not get surprised by how that all shakes out in production because it's all done by the time it gets to production. Yeah, and I think, I think the fact that we led into this with a discussion of uh, maintenance burden being an issue, I feel like metaprogramming has been, in Ruby was like this great amazing tool for the first four months and then it was this maintenance burden for the next two years, um, especially if you, over, if you took over someone else's project. Yeah, yeah. I, I tended to think of it kind of like a hole saw if you if you're not familiar with what a hole saw is, it's essentially a, a drill bit that is a saw on the other end that's a big circle, and so you use it to put bigger holes in walls. And it's really great. I can feed a whole bunch of cables through that hole, but then I can hear everything from the other room, and the drafts come through. And so, yeah, sometimes it's the appropriate thing, right? I need a dryer vent. I'm going to use a hole saw, but other times it. You know, it feels like it opens up all these possibilities, but then there are all these other issues that come with it. One of the things um, I wanted to kind of move into is, it's like, as you've kind of walked us through this progression where you've been creating Elixir and going through multiple iterations of this process and, you know, this year, years long uh, journey, like as you released it and started to get traction and people were talking about it, it started becoming something popular or just at least getting mind share? Like what, what was that like at that time to experience that? Oh, um, yeah, so one of the things that, uh, so, so after I, so I built a prototype, just to give a little bit more of context, I did a prototype 
then it failed. Then I, I did a bunch of research and I, I had this idea like of how I wanted the programming language to look like. I went to, uh, to my partners at Plata Pharma Tech and I say, hey, can I work part, part of, can I invest part of my time in the company on this? And they said, yes. I did the whole presentation, we explored a bunch of different ideas and why it should matter. Uh, but I knew a couple of things. I know that I was uh, on a time. I don't know like how much, they didn't say like you have two years, right? They, nobody said that. But I knew that, you know, at some point I have to just say, look like this, I should find something else, right? Like this is not going to work. So, so uh, nobody gave me a time, right? And said so, like, you have to finish around this. But I knew there was, I knew that at at some point, uh, it would have to work by some definition of work that no, nobody also nobody told me what that would be, but I knew there was something. So one of the things that I did is that I tried to be very, um, how do I, I don't know how to say this, but I tried to not have any expectation and put myself like fairly neutral from the process. Like, mm-hmm. because I know it could fail and I did not want it to be, a big disappointment to myself. I was like, I, I don't want to get like that involved, that attached to it in terms of success or failure. And also because I don't want, I, I would like to think that my decisions, they're not going to be based around the, the, the success or failure of the language, right? Like, so, so I, I kept like, yeah, so I had a expectation that um, it can fail, it can succeed, and I'm not going to be motivated by that. I also kind of like want to think that I did not want to have the success or failure of the language change my design decisions. If, you know, I want to do what I think it's correct or what is the best solution to the problem. So, so yeah, so that's a very, <laughs> that's a very long answer to say that, of course, I got excited. I got happy, but I kind of like prepared myself to amortize uh, whatever was going to come. So, um, to kind of balance things out, but definitely, you know, as as I could see, like more companies, people writing books, and people deciding to invest in the community, uh, that was really rewarding to see. And I was thinking mostly not in personal terms, but just in, se- in the sense that, you know, like, hey, this may actually work out, like, or more like, hey, like, if a buzz run over me, there is, like, this is not dying with myself, right? Like, maybe there is somebody else that is going to take over it and it can continue on its own. That's awesome. It's been, like, what, uh, 11 years now since you kind of began this process? No, not, not, not as many. Uh, so the, the prototype started in 2011. Okay. It's good. It's good that it started in January because it makes the math really easy. So it started in January 2011 when I decided like the elixir that we all know today, I, I, I say that it started in 2012. Mm-hmm. So uh, January 2012. But that makes it a little bit hard because like if somebody asks me like how old elixir actually is, I don't know like which answer I should give, <laughs> right? Because like the, the, the first commit is, uh, is eight years and a half, let's say. But the, the, the commit for the language that actually the language that we, we have today, that, you know, the, the first commit, I mean, like the language that had objects and everything, right? But they all have today is like seven years and a half. So, uh, yeah, so we are, we still have uh, some time for our uh, 10th anniversary. I just have to decide if that's going to be 
in 2021 or 2022? What What do you think? <laughs> Let, let's I, let's settle this now. I think we should use the earlier date until Elixir turns 30, and then we'll use the later date because we feel sensitive about our age. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, that that's an interesting idea. I don't know. Uh, I, I never really thought about how to put a birth date on an, on a language like that, especially when you go through iterations and, and attempts. It's like, oh, I'm, I've got a prototype. Oh, I'm going to scrap that one and throw that away. Does that count? I don't know. I think it counts because I feel like that's the same with people, right? Like people change their focus and they're still that old, right? They don't get to be like, no, 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 I'm, I'm one now because I decided I want to be an accountant instead of a programmer. Right. So it's a pivot, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point. Or, or we can just say it counts from one no, right? And then, and then that's like fixed. It's just, yeah, it's just like I kind of feel like I want to have the party sooner because one no was like 2014, so we would have we are like five years. Yeah, you're going to, you're going to be like five years since one no this year, probably September or something like that. Yeah, if you want to have the party earlier, definitely go with the earlier date. That's easy. Nice. We could just do a party at each of the ten year anniversaries with the first commit the first public release, and then the 1.0. I know, you can never have too many parties, right? Well, right. one thing that I'm curious about, so you start building out Elixir. Um, I mean, at what point were you able to start using it at, in projects at Platform Attack? And I guess the other question is, is at what point did you realize that now you have to support other systems and platforms being built on Elixir? Um, right, so... So it, it's kind of, so one of the things that I did, um, so Matt, he's always says kidding that he's not a Ruby programmer. He's a, C, he's a C programmer, right? Because he's working on Ruby and a lot of Ruby is written in C. So uh, one of the things that I thought was like, I want to, to, I want to make sure that I can write most of Elixir in Elixir itself. So... Uh, so it's kind of like I can have this escape hatch where I can actually end up writing a lot of Elixir and for the language itself and it still counts as Elixir. So I think like I have been using the language for itself for a good amount of time. Uh, I did prototypes along the way. So for example, since the very beginning, uh, I knew like for my company, for Platform Attack, I, our focus is web, right? So I knew we had to use Elixir for the web. So I did prototypes. Uh, so there is, so for those who started the Elixir community very early, you remember that I wrote a small web framework that was not meant to be used, uh, for people using it anyway in production, uh, called Dynamo. And it was basically like me like validating my ideas, like, could I get this language and make it in, and build something on top of it that makes it a good case for the web? Because uh, for me, one important rule is that the language should be extensible. I didn't want it to have the web foundations and concepts in the language itself, but the language should be extensible to the web domain. And then, uh, and then I did something for uh, Acto, which still exists today as Acto, but it was very early on. And it was a project that uh, was sponsored by Pragmatic Programmers and another company that I'm not going to remember the name right now, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, kind of to validate those ideas. So there was some validation early on, like, hey, can I, can I really do the things that I'm hoping I can do with this language, but as a separate project, not part of the language itself. So uh, I, I was lucky to be able to, to experiment and try those different things. And with time, I become a more, 
you know, a more user of the language than creator or maintainer of the language. Although if we're really thinking about like from the company perspective, like when did we start to have our first clients, for example, uh, it was in 2016. So uh, quite, it was a really long period of uh, research and development, like four years. And, uh, and we reached Illinois in 2014, right? So um, it took some time for everything to be in place. And then we are like, hey, now we have Elixir clients too. Did I answer everything? I'm feeling like maybe I forgot to answer some particular parts. I, I think you answered both the questions, but now I have a new one. Um, now, in your work now, they, now the, like the current time, I know you are on the team for Phoenix and Ecto and other projects. How much of your time do you think you spend actually on like the Elixir repo itself at this point? All right. So, yeah, I like where this is going. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the, 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 how everything is working today. So uh, when Elixir 1.0 was released, I knew that, so uh, the other question was uh, when I knew I had to maintain other companies and I knew I had to do that uh, when I released 1.0. But before 1.0, I was like, no guarantees. I would do the best of work to kind of provide a good path for the community because the community was well uh, evolved. And then, but after one, no, I'd be like, you know, this is it. This is the deal. I cannot change things anymore. That's why we have a very huge, we have a bunch of things that have been deprecated in the language because we can't remove them. They are there. They're going to stay there for a while, right? And after one, no, I knew that now I have to help uh, bootstrap the ecosystem. So uh, I had to work more on plug, which is kind of like our layer for uh, connect, for is our common abstraction specification for writing web applications. I worked uh, on Ecto. Then uh, I knew like we would need to have a, a web framework or something like a web framework. I did not want to do that myself. And at the time, we actually had a bunch of web frameworks. Uh, but to me, uh, and then Phoenix came out. And to me, the reason why Phoenix came out is, is again, because people that were writing web frameworks, and it was basically you know, how to get the existing web frameworks that we have today, like Django and Rails, and bring it to Elixir. And Phoenix was like, yo, forget about all of that. The, the game is really real time and channel. So I was like, you know, like, okay. So it was very similar with experience with Verlang, right? So everybody was thinking about a problem. And when Phoenix came, it's like, you know, you should not really be thinking about this. You should be thinking about this thing that is ahead and Phoenix has since then like be pushing the envelope in this. So later it came presence uh, that I still don't see it implemented anywhere else. Like it's implemented today, like without external dependencies and so on. And then now we have Phoenix Live View, which is still pushing the envelope in this area. And the community was also pushing the envelope with things like Drab and so on. So uh, yeah, so I knew like a lot of work would have to be done on that. And I was on purpose involved in a lot of this. Uh, because I felt it was part of my responsibility. At the same time, we were collecting a lot of feedback on how to improve Elixir, and we were having bigger and bigger things using Elixir in production, and um, that, of course, uh, gave us a bunch of interesting feedback sometimes from our clients on how we could uh, improve everything. Uh, for example, there are things like the formatter, which I think it only becomes a... When you're working with small teams, nobody is really asking for a formatter, but when you have larger teams, a bunch of more contributors, even inside that team itself is 
uh, it's when you say like, we need a formatter, right? We need to start standardizing things where before we could just kind of agree on something that exists on everybody's mind. So there was a lot of language development and my plans and I'm in 2019. So this happened all this time. Like I think the ecosystem really progressed, really evolved and people were able to bring Elixir for domains that I know nothing about. And I am super, super proud, super happy about it. I think like, so you asked like, how are you getting involved? Like how did you react when other people started using it? For me, the best part was really when I saw things like Cynic, nerves, membrane that I know nothing about and people they are doing amazing things with it. So that's the part that really amazed me. So uh, I feel, so when I started 2019, I had, uh, I had three goals in mind. Uh, so this year, right? So my goals for this year is, so uh, last year at the Elixir Conf keynote, I said like, I feel like Elixir is getting really close, close from feature complete. And the only thing that is missing is releases. We want to have releases as part of core. And for those who are not familiar, releases is a way, is a way where you can package uh, your Elixir project with all the applications, dependencies, their link VM into a directory or a file and push it to production. So I wanted to have it uh, releasing Elixir is the last feature for Elixir. And it doesn't mean that we'll stop working Elixir. Uh, it just means that you know, we'll continue maintaining the language, we'll continue doing improvements, release there is still going to come every two, uh, every, sorry, twice per year, every six months, but we are not really planning big changes, right? So, uh, so that was my goal for 2019. I want to ship releases, it's almost ready. I actually hope I can finish the work this week. Uh, like 60, 70% of it is already, is already merged into master, I just need to fish to finish some features around it. The other one, the other thing that I want to finish is uh, instrumentation. So a lot of companies, they've come and said, you know, um, we really, we, we have a, lo a lot, bunch of data in the VM and we, we, we need to have better ways of getting this data out. So we have been working with the help of early solutions on a package called telemetry, which is about an API for getting events out of your system and we, it's already integrated with Vecto, we are going to integrate it with Phoenix, it's already integrated with Plug. We want, we want to continue the integrations and have a really first class instrumentation experience. Uh, so for example, I want like, I want it to, to be really easy for it to say, measure this, measure this, measure this, and now push it to like stats right? So I said what? If you have like three measures these and I want to push it in stats D, that should be like four lines of code change, not more, not less, right? That, that's kind of the goal for instrumentation. That's, so that's the second thing for 2019. And while I do that, I want to, to step a little bit away from uh, what I have been working on. Uh, I want to step a little bit away from Phoenix. I want to step a little bit away uh, from Acto. And I don't know, I want to just, you know, like, kind of clear my head and start to think what I actually want to do next. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume, you spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. Triplebyte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. 
I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash elixir. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. So you have a strong core team built up around those other libraries and and things continue to go. Is there, do you still like give a, a consulting kind of role of uh, feedback and ideas for uh, philosophy or anything like that? Right. So uh, I don't, I don't necessarily have like a, a specific role. So for example, um, I've been involved in some projects more than others. So like in nerves, I have not been involved at all. Sometimes they say, Hey, we have this problem. And then I talk to Frank or I talk to Jesse and then we figure out a solution, but it's like just very ad hoc. In Phoenix, I have been involved more actively uh, in Acto as well, uh, but there is nothing. And each project, it's kind of like I'm, they have their life in their own and I'm, you know, and it's just going to continue its life, uh, whatever it is. So, you know, Phoenix has its own team with Jason and Gary and Chris, of course, who is the creator. Uh, and they're going to continue doing their work. With Acto, we actually took it, we did something different where we said, Acto now is actually in maintenance mode. So the API is stable. We are not adding or not removing anything. It is what it is. So we did a different decision uh, there, right? And I, I, I guess each project is going to, to, to take different decisions. And there are other things, so for example, um, um, we have recently recently released Broadway as part of Platform Attack, and I am involved. And there is a project where I think I'm more of a like a consultant role because uh, we have a team. So it's uh, I have a team that is my I have a team inside Platform Attack inside the Department of Research and Development, and they are the ones that is actually developing and building Broadway. And I'm there to give feedback whenever they need, right? But uh, I, it's their responsibility. Uh, it's not mine, and that's how I would like. Uh, to see this moving forward. So I have a couple of questions uh, related to all of that. Uh, the first is on Broadway, is there anything that you sort of want to see people like showing building publicly with Broadway? Uh, like which are, which are really good use cases that you just really wish someone would put out a solid example of? Because I want to play with it pretty badly and I haven't yet. Uh, right, that's a very good question. So the canonical is, is case for Broadway is like, I want to take data out of anything and process it. So it's like job processing, data processing, data ingestion. I don't feel like there is, there is much, I'm not sure if there is like the perfect project, right? But, but the crude would be like, you know, get data out of SQS and push it elsewhere. Or so just like, like yeah, e ETL examples or, or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So what, what was the other question? My other question is, you, you mentioned you wanting to sort of step back and clear your head a little bit, and I'm not asking you for any kind of like obligation of any sort, obviously. I was just curious, what are you thinking about doing? Uh, do you have any plans? Um, I, I have some ideas, but I'm... I'm, I do not know yet. I still have like to sort for my, for my ideas and kind of feel what I want to do. So to me, to, to me, like the first thing that I want to do is to like, is to change cycles. So we're talking about the beginning of the language and that period that I built the prototype. 
it was a moment where I was actively consuming rather than producing. And I have not done that for a good chunk of time. So uh, I did from time to time. So when we started Acto, I researched a lot on, you know, domain-driven design and how other languages, they solve the problem that Acto solves. And with GenStage and Flow, there was a particular research period, but generally it, there were short periods and I have been like, so if you think like it's the department of research and development, we have been doing a lot of development lately, not a bunch of research. So I want to kind of like go into a mode where I'm going to be consuming more than producing for a while and uh, sort this information and see what comes out of it. So I'm not quite sure yet. That sounds awesome. That's a, that's a great answer. So thank you. So I wanted to, you, you brought up the topic uh, Broadway. And I, I watched your uh, Lone Star Elixir Conf talk where you kind of introduced Broadway and you kind of gave the whole idea of where it came from, like the progression from uh, up through gen stage. And uh, you, what you kind of laid out is like you had this as a, a longer term vision of where you wanted to get to. And then like, okay, now here it is, it works. And I'm just curious, are there any other long term vision ideas that you have that we might be, you know, like might intimate or kind of indicate something about the future. It's like, oh, because like, it's like, it feels like you've been playing the long game, right? It's like, you want to be able to solve these kinds of problems. So you create a language and then you create all these other things. And then, and then uh, Broadway is a piece of that, you know, it just feels like there's a, a longer arc going here. And I'm just wondering uh, if you want to speak to that at all. Yeah, but uh, I think that thing that is worth noting uh, because it makes, it's like, all this is in hindsight, right? It's just like, yeah, oh yeah, it's a long journey, but it's like when you look back, right? Like at the beginning, I, you know, like for everything. So just to, for those who did not watch the talk, my talk, I talk about like how I wanted to have very good abstractions to work with collections. And we start with lazy, we start with eager, and then we went to lazy and then wanted to make things concurrent and we wanted to make things distributed. And that, that's all I had. I did not, I, that was pretty much it at the beginning. I did not know much more of what would happen, where I would go. And um, we went uh, step by step. So going from eager to lazy, and that means the enum and stream modules that we have in the Elixir standard library, that was a step that we did very early on. But going from lazy to concurrent, like took a lot of time. Uh, it took uh, literally years. So uh, and then, and then the next step, and, th and that was when we, we launched like GenStage and Flow, and they were really focused on the concurrent side of things, and I think they are great projects, and we decided to, you know, like, at that moment, we could say, can we try to give the next step, which is like to make, to have really good, good distributed data processing tools uh, by default in Elixir, and what I, what I mean about like the data processing in the sense is like, so today you can have distributed data processing in Elixir, you, can, you just need to put things in a queue, RabbitMQ, Amazon SQS, and then you start multiple nodes, and sure, you have distributed data processing, right? But what I mean distributing this case is like, we will do everything for you. You do not need a separate queue. We are going to aggregate data across nodes for you. And that's kind of the thought. So when we were first to do this step, like have everything concurrent and now we have to make distributed, we're like, oh, well, this is, <laughs> this is a very long and hard step. If concurrency took two years, this may as well take five, right? So we decided to not like 
to not do that and just wait and see how people are using GenStage and Flow, how they are uh, how they are exchanging data, how they are consuming data from other services. And Broadway was like is is something in that direction. It's still in the concurrency area, but just to make it easier for everybody to consume data from an external system. And uh, and yeah, right. So for example, if we're if we're talking about like the grand arc of things, like uh, we still have the distributed. If somebody wants to solve that, like please go ahead. I I think I, I think I've settled myself, for example, on the concurrency story, and uh, and but it doesn't stop others from from trying to to explore it and see what the solutions uh, would look like. But yeah, I, I, it, to answer your question more like generally, I'm not sure if there are other grand uh, grand arcs or nothing that I want to see, not, or nothing that I can see right now, right? Maybe maybe in a couple of years, or maybe next year, right? Because it's 2020, it's good things, good year to see things in hindsight, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, not, not at the moment, I think. Awesome. Well, we do have a, a question from uh, a Twitter follower who asked, um, is there anything that you regret about Elixir? Oh, uh, it's, I, should, I should take notes. There, there may be like, I think regret is a very strong word. And, um, and maybe there is something that I maybe should have done different. But this is always hard. So at the beginning of the language, every time somebody asked me me a question, I would I would kind of like zone out for like thirty minutes, kind of like revisiting all the the decisions I did in the language. And it's kind of I feel like it's like kind of a Jenga game. You cannot like say, oh, I would change just this one thing because you change that one thing and it cascades to a bunch of other places and it end up affecting everything. So uh, there, there, I don't want to say there aren't any. I'm sure there are, but I wouldn't also say it's like it's a regret. Maybe one or other thing I would have done differently if I could go back in time. But um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. So I have to, to to try really hard to not go back and, and zone out. And you're just going to hear me in 30 minutes. So yeah, let, let's let's stop. Let's stop right here. Yep. Well, there's one other, we kind of talked about how um, your involvement in the Ruby community and coming up through, um, you know, your journey, your personal journey kind of coming from Ruby and, and into kind of Erlang and functional programming. I'm just wondering, um, we've talked about Matt's, uh, who is the creator of Ruby. And there's this principle that was talked about a lot about in the Ruby community called Miniswan, which is Matt's is nice, so we are nice. And it was just kind of this idea that uh, that uh, Matt's was kind of considered this uh, spokesperson, if you will, like for the language. And I think you fill that role right now for Elixir. And I've just noticed that the Elixir community is very open. It's very inclusive. It's very friendly. I just wonder how much of a conscious effort you've made to kind of create that culture. Um. So yeah, another excellent question. I'm not sure how much of a conscious effort was was done, besides uh, just being myself. So you know, and being the first person that a lot of people would interact with, and just started to be 
and just being welcoming and receptive and open to ideas, open to suggestions. So I think uh, it was it was a very good foundation for us to to build uh, everything on top of. So it, it's fine, right? Because uh, you know when Ruby started, uh, I, and here I'm speculating. So if I speculate something wrong, uh, I apologize. Uh, but you know uh, it was we were much less communicated than communicative uh, than we are today, right? Which I think it even it's uh, actually it's show how great Matt is in terms of setting the tone for the community, right? Because he was able to do it in a time we were much less connected. And I think I had it much easier because uh, it's a lot easier for people to reach out to me and, you know, and see how everything is developed and built and, and exchange ideas. So, yeah, I, I just, I like to think it was natural and not a end of fork or something that, like I have to be nice, otherwise people won't be right. It's just I think it was uh, rather supernatural. Nice. So you're just naturally a nice guy, and that just that's cool. <laughs> the dude with the heart emojis. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that actually. Uh, yeah, I have to thank uh, Carlos Antonio. Uh, he was also a member of the Rails team. I don't think he is anymore, but he worked with me at Platform Attack and. As far as I know, he's the one who started it, and uh, I just, I just continue the trend. It's actually, it's actually a very fun story how it always started. So let's change the. So, um, so one of the things that in the Ruby community that I did a lot was like I help maintain Rails, I help maintain device, and sometimes like and one of the things that we had to do today GitHub's like, one thousand times better for this was like doing issues triage, right? They just have to say, hey, this is not an issue, this is not a bug, oh, this is a feature request, not do feature requests here. Or some, sometimes people would open up issues asking for help, where there would be better places to ask for help. So I had like answers that I would like copy and paste all the time. And somebody did at the time a Firefox Google Chrome extension called uh, Jose versus open source where it added buttons on my, uh, and uh, the, the GitHub nickname, I will send a link later, uh, is Nashby. I do not know how to pronounce his name, his actual name, so I won't try. But um, so he, he did this project, that was open source, which was an extension that would add a couple buttons uh, on the bottom of my, of my comment thing, right, in, in GitHub. And then I could, with a press of a button, I could uh, just, uh, do that reply, and I think in the second version of this thing, uh, and it was really nice because it said like, "Hey, I did this thing for you," and then it was really amazing because it made me much more productive. It was much easier for me to close issues. And one of the things that uh, I think the second version, the platform attack team, my coworkers, Rafael and and um, Carlos, they said, "Oh, we should also have this hearts emoji, like which is so I would press a button and it would like." Uh, print for five hearts, right? Each in a different color. Drop that as a comment. So everything started to definition gets flies, but you you can be sure that one of my first can reply is actually the hearts there. So uh, that's why it's so easy to 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 do that. And I do it every time I merge a pull request. Yeah, that's awesome. I never knew the the backstory there. I, I first noticed the hearts as like a pattern in um, when I would look through issues on Rails, um, and then I, I saw it pop up a lot whenever I was doing work, uh, open source work in Elixir, 
Um, and that's, it's really interesting to hear the history because to me, it was just part of the community, right? I just, um, actually, uh, when people open pull requests now, I almost, I, I make sure that I always include some hearts in my response just because I, you know, to me, that was an elixir thing. Um, you know, it goes along with Mark's comments about the community being encouraging. Um, I, I actually, I really love the way that you talk about the history of Elixir and you're very open about the fact that there's times that you didn't know exactly what you wanted or where you were going. And I think that encourages other people to, to take risks and just, you know, build a database and see how it goes or, or whatever it is. Um, so uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks for sharing that history and uh, also, I would um, encourage anyone listening to to go, uh, you know, whether it's a canned response or whatever tool you use, make sure you include some hearts in your open source comments and pull requests. Yeah, that, that's also why, like, sometimes people say, like, what do you think the Elixir community uh, should do? And I always have no idea. And 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 to me, it's great, right? Because they are building all these amazing things. And I did not say anything. I did not provide any direction. So I, even if I knew something, I was like, you know, I'm not telling anybody anything because uh, they, you know, the community obviously does, does not need it, right? So yeah, just go experiment, as you said, and it doesn't matter. Well, one of the things we've been recently talking about on the, on our podcast is just how how uh, you, Jose, are not defined by Elixir, right? You were Jose before Elixir and you will be Jose after Elixir. So like, what are some of the things that you like to do just like, you know, in your own free time when you're like, want to get away from a computer? Uh, I think people would like just kind of learn a little, little bit more about you. Oh, uh, you're, you're going for my weak points now. Yeah. So, right. So, <laughs> so before... So I have, I have two kids. So before I had kids, I would stay a lot in front of the computer. That would be basically everything I did all the time. And now uh, my oldest is going to be five in like eight days. Congratulations. So since I had, thank you. So since, since I had kids, they end up taking a lot of part in my routines. And uh, the things that, so for example, if they're going to do like self-criticism, I think like I should take better care of my health, for example. I should... Uh, it's not that I don't take care of it, but for example, I could exercise more. And it's something that it's my, like, it's on my to-do for years, literally, and I did not uh, get started. Something that I want to do is that uh, I, I would like to get more involved with music somehow. I don't know exactly how. And again, this is my to-do list, like, forever. So when I was in university, I had a band, for example, but the last time I actually played anything was probably more than a decade ago. So there are a couple of things that I would like to do more, to start doing or to get back to. And I, I don't for some reason or another. It's not that I'm also like, I feel like I am uh, being victimized by all of this. Like I still enjoy a lot working on everything I do and everything I work every day. And the reason I'm a lot in front of the computer is not because somebody is pushing me to do that, it's because I actually want to be here. I actually enjoy that a lot. But I also have things that I want to do and I have things that uh, I have to do and, um, and I don't do it as much. So the things that I, I would say I would do like right now when I want to relax a little bit or I, 
I've recently bought a Nintendo Switch. I'm enjoying that a lot. So sometimes when I want to to turn off um, that works or when I'm traveling, it's if you travel a lot, I, I would say like just buy it because it makes traveling the airplane such a pleasure because you just you you don't have to pay attention to anything. You just turn on the game and you maybe sleep and then the flight's over. It's fantastic. Uh, and I also enjoy soccer a lot as uh, as expected from somebody from Brazil. So <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, so that's what I would do and uh, watch a little bit of soccer. And uh, yeah, but there are things that I definitely want to do and I should get more involved, but I do not. Yeah. What's the best game on the Switch? Uh, Zelda. And uh, if you don't agree, I'm turning off. <laughs> well, I, I give you a hug. We, we're, we, <laughs> we should be like best friends. I guess you can't play Zelda together, though. This is one player. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, so to me, it's like, I had like my last video game was like when I was maybe 16 or 17. So I had like a huge gap where I didn't play. And then, and then I, I start playing again after like 15 years or something like that. And my first game is, is the new Zelda. And at, in a way, it kind of like ruined everything else for me because it was like, I, I came back at the peak. I was like, you know, like there is nothing else that I'm going to play after this that is going to feel as good. And uh, later I end up finding out, finding out other games that I really enjoy. Uh, so uh, to give, like, to say a couple of indie games. So like uh, Hollow Knight, I enjoy a lot. Uh, there is Footy as well, uh, very intense um, that I also enjoy. So, but yeah, it, it was it was really fun, like not playing for a bunch of time and then playing Zelda. That was so immersive and uh, fantastic game. Yeah, I would I would like to get a Switch and play Zelda. The only game I play is StarCraft, and it's like the opposite of of relaxing. <laughs> nice. Are you well, Jose's in a great place for soccer too i mean i i enjoy going to the mls games here in the u.s but it's not the same i lived in italy for two years and the soccer there is different a little more intense yeah so i try so i'm a huge fan of uh barcelona and uh since since four years so um it started when Ronald Junga, which I don't know how much you follow soccer, so I'm not going to go too deep into this, but fantastic player. Uh, he went to Barcelona, and he's from the same city as I was born, so I was like, I was already a fan of him, and then we went to Barcelona, I started following them, uh, and I've been doing that for the last, I don't know, 12, 13 years, so I try to go from the, to their games from time to time, and yeah, it's much easier if you're in the same continent, right? Otherwise, uh, it gets a little bit too expensive to see the games, but yeah. Everyone watch out for the new devchat.tv podcast called Chuck and Jose play Nintendo Switch and watch soccer. That's right. I'm, <laughs> one day I'm going to buy my own soccer team. But, uh, we, we can co-invest. Uh, so reach, reach out. Yeah, there we go. Well, we can be co-owners and uh, we'll put the dev chat branding and the Plataforma Tech branding on their, on their jerseys. <laughs> yeah. Purple shirts. We, we'll figure it out. Yeah. I am in. I am so in. But All right, you heard it here first, folks. You know, <laughs> in five years, I'm, I'm going to be calling Jose up. Dude, I found a team. All right. <laughs> I do want to uh, 
bring up one more thing before we hit close. We don't want to too long. Um, but you've recently announced the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation. And I think that is uh, an interesting uh, collaborative effort between um, not just Erlang, but like some of the other Beam languages, but just like that it's all kind of Beam focused. And I just wonder if you could want to talk a little bit about that and kind of where things are at today. And you've also kind of talked about how people can uh, start to get involved. So I just wonder if you want to mention anything there. Yeah, so I'll, I'll do, so I'll, great point. I'll do the opportunity to do a couple uh, plugs. So we're all set about the uh, Erlang Ecosystem Foundation. So we have just started, so we are figuring out a bunch of stuff. And so what we did is that we want this to be an effort uh, from the community to the community. So we kind of went through like the legalist part of it, which is like, you have to define bylaws, which we mostly inherited from Python. Uh, from the Python Foundation, you have to define a board and you have to apply. So you get something for tax purpose in the United States. So there's a whole bunch of things and we just got a group of people together so we can define like that, so we can have this legal definition. And then we want to get, as we figure things out, how we're going to work with the community, how the community is going to participate in working groups, get involved, how we're going to get sponsorships. We, we are still working on all that. So. What I can say is like kind of like watch out what is happening. So join uh, the foundation uh, website. We're going to have it in the link notes. It's uh, e. Uh, it's can somebody pronounce it for me? It's hard as a as a native speaker. Erleth.org. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so so yeah. And then as we have more notes and how we're going to work together and how you can get involved, how you can be a member. We, so there is a text box where you can put your email today, you, and then we are going to send you a couple notes. Uh, the other shout out I want to do too is to obviously Plataform Attack. We talked a little bit about this throughout the talk and how they have invested in Elixir since the beginning. Um, and yeah, so if you are looking to do, if you're planning to do Elixir or you're already doing Elixir today, um, give us, reach out to us, um, go to our website, plataformattack.com.br and reach out to us and we can talk about it the best way we can help, how we can uh, develop software together. One of the initiatives that I have been working uh, inside Platform Attack since the last year is the Elixir Development Subscription Service. So what we notice is that there are a bunch of companies that are using Elixir in production and they want to kind of have a direct contact with our engineering team. And um, and the development subscription is a service that allows you exactly to do that. So if you have questions, if you want us to review code, uh, we can work together. And uh, who is working with the development subscription is my team inside the research and development department. So we have been uh, working on very exciting problems with our clients. We are building a bunch of interesting things. So for example, we had kind of like, we were talking about Broadway and we had an idea that we wanted to do Broadway, but when we started working with different companies, and we saw that uh, quite a good amount of them that were facing those same issues. It led us to kind of like pull the trigger on the broader idea sooner. And we are uh, cooking up some other ideas soon. So uh, a bunch of interesting things happening there as well. So in any way, if you're doing Elixir and you want to talk, please reach out to us. We'd love to see uh, how we can help you and how we can build things together. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to push us into picks. Um, Mark. You want to start us off with picks? Wait, wait, give, give me some context. So the picks is like something to recommend? Yeah, just uh, shout outs about anything, yeah, to recommend. 
So we'll, we'll have our panelists go first and that way, um, yeah, you, you can kind of get the gist since you haven't been on one of the shows in a while. Yeah, that's kind of fair. For, I have been doing picks for the last like five minutes. I'll think about something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of your picks could even be, you know, Earl, EarlEF.org. You know, yeah. you, can, you can reuse something, whatever you want to Perfect. emphasize. Yeah, I've got a pick. Um, so recently, uh, the Stack Overflow Developer Survey came out, uh, and there was a lot of excitement around Twitter, you know, Elixir showing up in some of these things. And I just want to mention like, hey, it's, it's, you know, this is not a, uh, I don't know if it's like, a, it's not a work of academia. This isn't something that like, oh, I'm going to base all of my life decisions on this survey, but it's fun. And it, it gives it a little bit of an insight into the Stack Overflow users. Uh, but one of the things that was kind of fun is that Elixir is high on the list of most loved and it is on the list of uh, top paying jobs. Uh, so Elixir is uh, in the top 10 in the US and the top five globally for the highest paying and is number eight in the most loved. So it is just, uh, I think it's great. It's, it's, you know, the numbers are still fairly low, but it's climbing. And I think it's just kind of neat to see that. So if you haven't already taken a look and see where all the different languages are that you work with, it's something fun to look at. So it's the developer survey. Nice. Uh, Josh, what are your picks? All right, I have two picks, one programming related, one very much not. So the first is we talked about Ruby and uh, Matt's gave a talk recently about Ruby 3 and sort of where it's headed. And uh, really, really good. I'm, I'm doing a Rails project right now because I have a, a client that has existing Rails developers and uh, it just made sense for them. Uh, I do not care for it anymore but it works just fine. And uh, yeah, doing GraphQL in, in Rails is actually not terrible, um, but it's no absent. Anyway, so that's a really good talk. It's called Ruby 3, What's Missing, I think. And then uh, my non-programming pick is, uh, I just wanted to show everybody what a, what a Brahma chicken looks like, because it's enormous, and I have like 14 of them now. Uh, it's like the world's biggest chicken. It's, it's huge, and it's a ridiculous thing, and you didn't expect that link. Nice. Yeah, we're uh, working on scheduling an episode of Ruby Rogues to talk about the Ruby 3 talk. And uh, yeah, I was actually there <laughs> when he gave the talk, which was awesome. But it's really good. I love I love his uh, his talks and the little the little rabbit presentation software. Yeah, uh, I don't I don't know why I find that. I, I think I just find it so appealing because I've I've seen him give talks for so long and he's just used it for forever. Yeah, I was super sick, um, but I wasn't going to miss it. So. <laughs> I went, but yeah, it, it was terrific. And if you're wondering what's going on with Ruby, that's a great place to kind of get a feel for where things are going. So Michael, what are your picks? All right. I got two picks this week. So first one, um, I'm going to take a wild guess and say probably someone on the show has picked it before. I want to pick uh, Lance Halverson's book, Functional Web Development with Elixir, OTP, and Phoenix. Um, so this book I thought was really amazing at helping me to, um, have a lot of practice, like uh, very practical ways of practicing the art of transforming data. And as Jose talked about earlier in the episode, this is one of those things that at least for me, it took a little bit longer to, uh, to really get into, um, to, to naturally find myself reaching for this as a first class tool. And every time I have gotten better at it, it has paid dividends in my code in terms of maintainability, testability, 
um, all of those things. So uh, I highly recommend this book. It's just uh, just a great way to kind of get your hands around that topic. Um, and then my second pick is very much not programming related, but um, I have a deep abiding love for Bossa Nova, which is, it's a subset of, uh, of jazz. It comes from Brazil. And uh, there's this really great group that exists. Um, they're kind of a, a set of high school age kids. And uh, they have this great uh, jazz leader that has been putting together groups and, and just doing amazing performances. The first time I saw some of their YouTube videos, I, I just about lost it thinking about the fact that I will never be as cool as any of these people throughout the entirety of my life. Uh, and how are they already so amazing at this? So, um, so if you're into jazz, uh, it's worth a listen. And I'll, I'll drop a link to one of my favorites there. Awesome. I'm going to jump in here with a few picks. So uh, the first one is, um, I, I ran across this really interesting article that has nothing to do with programming or anything, um, but some scientists managed to 3D print a human heart. It's, it was tiny. It wasn't you know, something that you could actually put in somebody and do a transplant with. But as a proof of concept, it's really, really cool. And I just keep seeing these leaps forward in uh, science and technology. And I, anyway, I'm just kind of flabbergasted at, you know, where are we going to be in another few years, right? I mean, assuming they can get something like that to actually come together and work. I mean, that, oh, that would just be incredible. So anyway, um, I put a link to the article that I found it on um, in the chat. Um, one other pick that I have is PodWrench, and uh, this is a tool that I've been working on for the last year and a half. Um, I kind of hit some slowdowns with it uh, just because last year was horrible. Um, and if you've listened to the shows for a while, you kind of get just what, what went down. But um, anyway, it was just plain horrible last year. And uh, so I hit some slowdowns, but I'm picking up speed. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to have um, a solid beta out this summer. So if you are looking at starting a podcast, I would love, dearly love to talk to you. If you are running a podcast and you kind of cobbled together solutions out of like Trello and duct tape, um, you know, reach out to me as well. Um, I have systems that the hosts use and we kind of have it pretty seamless. Um, these guys can attest to the fact that mostly they just prep and show up. Um, but at the same time, um, on the back end, it's, it's not as clean. And so I'm working on a new system for that. Um, and so, yeah, I'm working on PodWrench. Um, and I should have things to the point where you can actually beta test it here within the next few weeks. So um, if you go to podwrench.com, um, you should be able to sign up. We're recording this on uh, April 16th. And yeah, probably within a week, um, I should have things actually workable enough to where you could manage a show in it but it also manages sponsorships and guests and planning and all that stuff. Um, and then the last thing that I'm going to pick is people keep uh, tweeting at me or sending me emails and telling me about other products that are coming out that are very much like PodWrench. And that pisses me off and gets my fire going. So keep doing it uh, because I'm just like, man, I got to beat out all these people. And it, it's not so much that I hate them or that I'm uber competitive but I really feel like I'm building a tool that's not like anything else out there. Um, there are some things that have a lot of the same, um, at least uh, macro level features, you know, manage ads, manage guests. Um, but I've done this and uh, yeah, I have 
a dozen shows that I've kind of guinea pigged it on. And, you know, uh, they're going to be my first unwitting beta testers <laughs> over the next few weeks. So, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, just keep feeding the fire and, uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, I guess lastly, I'm going to, I'm looking at sponsoring uh, podcast movement. Uh, that's out going to be out in Orlando in mid August. So if you are interested in podcasting, it's a terrific conference. And uh, I would love to meet you. If you get a ticket, you can come walk through the expo floor and I should be there somewhere. So um, anyway, super looking forward to that. So yeah, those are my picks and I'm still fired up because people keep sending me that stuff. So keep sending it. I, I really do love it. Um, Jose, what are your picks? So uh, I have a pick which is going to be uh, the talk is not out yet. is uh, It's a talk that Chris McCord gave at Elixir Conference EU 2019 about Phoenix Liveview. So maybe by the time the episode is out, the talk is is going to be available. If not, hopefully soon. And uh, I'll just tell a little bit about it and try to kind of like tie up the conversation we had we started with. So. Uh, so LiveView is a way where you can build rich and interactive user interfaces uh, that's run on the browser, but without having to write JavaScript. The, the, the smallest elevator pitch is like React on the server. It does not do it just this, but I think it's close enough as a conceptual model. And the talk's super interesting. Um, Chris has recently made open source LiveView, and the community is already building amazing things and it's really amazing to see like one of the like two of the best examples we have of LiveView they were done by people with uh, no programming experience in Elixir or sometimes no programming experience at all so uh, it's really fantastic to see how people are using the tool and the reason why I think it ties, ties up with everything that we said is that we, we started for example talking about concurrency and sometimes it's kind of uh, we, it's kind of hard to see the forest for the trees. And, but I think, so, you know, like we talk like, okay, Elixir is concurrent, but how does it matter for us? And how, how that will impact uh, my life as a developer? And the beginning would say, well, one of the things that it impacts is that your machine likely has like four, eight cores. So you have an opportunity to run everything like four and eight times faster. And that's what, um, uh, Elixir generally does. So when you're running your tests, it's using all the cores, right? And uh, it's no no hacks. It's not starting multiple instances. You don't have multiple databases. It's just use the thing and uh, it just works. A lot of people talk about like, okay, but what it matters, you know, uh, concurrency performance, right? So if we talk about performance, it means that if the, your tools are fast, they are going to be more productive and your solutions they're going to be more productive because they're going to spend less time like adding cache layers and layers and layers of cache because everything just works and everything is fast and i think what i really like about live view and this is the work that things have been doing as well is that by having those abstractions by having performance by having concurrency by having distribution uh i think phoenix is really being capable of innovating and bringing like solutions that did not exist before and models that did not exist before that is going to really increase our productivity and make us more productive and uh, as developers in general, right? So I think that was kind of like uh, the last tick we had to do. We were able to convince a lot of people that, yeah, it's going to be faster to developers, going to, is going to be more productive and this, 
But now we can say like we actually have models where we can do interesting things that we could not do before. I think it's a good, very, it's a very strong selling point for the platform. So uh, watch out the talk. Uh, it's really interesting. It shows a bunch of interesting things, a bunch of cool demos. And yeah. Nice. And then um, you plugged a whole bunch of stuff, but do you want to just remind people where to find you like on Twitter and GitHub and blog and whatever else? Uh, yeah, so on the grocery stores, <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah, so I've quit Twitter a long time ago, uh, so don't message me there. Uh, if you want to find me, uh, the best ways are IRC, so I am Jose Valin there, I am on the Elixir Link channel, uh, or, or on GitHub, yeah, those are the, the, the two main ways. Awesome. All right, well, thanks for coming, Jose. Right. Uh, it was a pleasure being here. I think, uh, uh, I think, no, I'm sure I had, uh, I had a lot of fun, uh, a lot of great questions and uh, really nice catching up. Yeah. I'm glad I parked myself on the front row when you were doing the uh, Erlang um, ecosystem foundation thing and poked you when you sat down next to me <laughs> so we could get you on the show. Yeah, that was great. All right, folks. Well, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap this up and we will be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.